Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Dave Clay. We're in a series of podcasts taken from Psychology Today, an article in Psychology Today, October 2022, entitled, What Parents of Trans Kids Want to Know When a Child First Tells Their Parents that they're transgender or non-binary, their parents have questions. Often these 10, the article is written by Devon Fry. Up to this point, we've covered questions one through four, and uh, we're not going to go back. I'm not going to go back and (laughs) make you endure uh, either asking the questions and answering them, or even so, Uh, having to endure listening to me repeat uh, what the previous podcasts have been about, at least in answering those questions, what I've said thus far. Uh, But I did want to summarize a bit. But before I do that, I want to set up the context of the scenario. Uh, The subject matter, so to speak, or the subject of the article His parents, Dana and Michael Stutman, have been supportive from the start, but it seems, or it's been, a new experience for all of us, and there's been some trial and error, Noah says, including some early instances of misgendering and misnaming that frustrated him. But these incidents have grown less frequent with time, and the changes Noah's parents have seen since his coming out have been gratifying. Before he was reticent, even shy, Dana says, now he's happy, gregarious. He's become a very confident, well-adjusted kid. Is this real? That was the first thought to course through Dana Stutzman's mind when her youngest child, Noah, disclosed to his parents that he didn't feel like a girl, though he was assigned female at birth. Dana, the daughter of an endocrinologist, understood more than many that some people experience deep discomfort with the sex they were born as and seek treatment to rectify the disparity. Still, the incongruence experienced by her father's patients felt abstract and unknowable until she heard that the child she spent nearly a dozen years raising expressed the same kind of distress. And to experience it personally, the reality of it is hard to grasp, says Dana, who lives with her family in New York City. Accepting it takes a leap of faith. In recent years, hundreds of thousands of children and teens in the U.S. alone have shared that their internal experience of their gender, known as gender identity, does not align neatly with the physical sex characteristics they were born with. Some, like Noah, are transgender. Their physical and felt genders do not match, and they take any of an array of steps to change their gender expression. Others are non-binary. They don't identify with either that or the male or female end of the gender spectrum. Still more are gender fluid, the gender with which they identify as flexible or changing. Again, Noah is the subject matter Their parents, by and large, the Stutzmans, want to do right by their kids. They also want to protect them from a world that can be actively hostile to those who don't fit societal expectations of how men and women should look and behave, all while trying to make sense of a highly polarized public conversation around gender diversity. 
and what gender-questioning kids do and do not need. After speaking to pediatricians, endocrinologists, psychiatrists, and psychologists, those doing research and those on clinical front lines, Psychology Today has called the most pressing questions parents have and the experts answer them. Again, this was taken from Psychology Today, October 2022. Once more, Noah is the subject. It's all set within the context of uh, this very real family whose parents are asking these very real questions. What parents of trans kids want to know by Devon Fry, when a child first, when a child first tells their parents that they're transgender and non-binary, their parents have questions. Often these ten. The first four questions we've already addressed, and again, I'm not going to make you endure not only my asking the questions again, but answering them again. But for the sake of making certain that if someone has kind of caught this podcast, not listening to the previous podcast, they may, not, they may know then where we've been. Question one, did we cause this? Question two, what causes this? Question three, is it just a phase? And question number four, why now? And again, summary, it's not always so clear-cut. It's very complex answering those questions. There's a lot to be said for the physiology, or at least the physical, genetic sort of explanation or an offering of an answer to these questions on a physical or genetic level, physiological level. But as we have said in previous podcasts, my opinion, as I have said, my opinion tends to lean toward as much more as much than a sociological. I won't say more, but it's as much a sociological answer phenomenon as it is a physiological one. Because genuinely speaking, you can't do much in terms of the genetic composition and whether or not we will one day fully establish with some sort of genetic mapping in mind how to determine whether or not a child is going to turn out to be a gender, this gender, that gender. It gets to some physiological dimension in the sense, absolutes. Uh, certainly genetics tell us what anatomical features one will bring forth or will be brought forth or what will be brought forth, one being the parents, uh, manifest in the child. Uh, but even then, the question of gender identity is more a label than it is a matter of anatomical feature, except when you begin to change or have the power to change the anatomical feature. Up to that point, you are where you are. And in that, then, the gender that's assigned at birth, male or female, is immutable. You can't change it. But now we're at a point where we have capability to alter the physiology and now align that which seemed up to that point, and probably still is, to the moment that we make those changes, immutable. Now we can begin to align reality or the physiology with what 
in a psychological context, and I think more so as much as sociological phenomenon, the psychology or the individual aspect of the psychological phenomenon would be identity, an individual's identity, but it's formed not only individually, but first and foremost within social context. It's what we're speaking of saying about such a subject matter or such subject matter or such a subject uh, culturally, sociologically, as it is what then the individual comes to define themselves as, as it is a matter of physiology, until once again you change the physiology. And parents are primary in terms of that socialization. They're one of the primary agents, school being the secondary. And then you can kind of extend that to extended family, community. There's differences in geography. Uh, there's difference in nationality. There may be some, again, uh, differences in not only nationality, but whatever culture they, those nationalities have come stereotypically to represent. And all of that then... <laughs> kind of puts a label on a person. Is it wrong to label a person? I don't know. Most people, at least the line of thinking thus far on the podcast has been, most are not going to be able to do that until they get to a certain point in their development, psychological, physiological, psychosocial, cognitive, emotional development as to claim a sense of identity. That doesn't generally happen until most of us have at least thought traditionally that doesn't happen until a person hits adolescence. Uh, I guess the question now is maybe it occurs earlier or there's a, the additional question now of whether that may or may not occur earlier in life. But I think most of us would still, the consensus would be agree that in that traditional sort of theoretical perspective when it comes to psychology, uh, we're still pretty much at the earliest stages of our life what people will define us to be. That is our primary reference for who we are. And then we do go about testing it, and there is a lot that could be said for agency, independence, autonomy, individuality, when you become an, an individual, when you are able to form identity, then you can begin to question that. But I continue to want to bring it back to this point, but that really doesn't change the <laughs> gender assigned at birth anatomically until you can begin to change the gender assigned at birth anatomically. And that is where we are. So as questions parents might have, <laughs> until a person, their child, is of sufficient age to make those decisions for themselves, the parents have a lot to say about that. Traditionally, we saw that again, not only in adolescence, that age of, uh, I guess, being able to make those decisions, chronologically speaking, uh, consent <laughs> as an adult to making a choice of such impact. Once it's done, it's hard to reverse. Once you've decided to alter your anatomical features uh, to try to change your gender in a more realistic or reality, physiologically sort of based way. Uh, it, 
until you do that or as you do that, you should be old enough, we would presume, to make that decision for yourself. And usually we've traditionally considered that to be, again, the age of consent. It varies somewhere, again, between 16 and 21, depending on what you're talking about, whether it's making decisions about drinking or joining the military or driving an automobile. It's somewhere in that age range. Anything before then, you require parental consent. And certainly Noah is under that, or at the low end of that age range, uh, 13. So maybe, again, we're moving the marker a bit. Let's make sure, again, that there's some evidence that the marker needs to be moved. Again, we're kind of deviating from genetics because we really can't establish any sort of gene that says you're going to be transgender or this gender or that gender in terms of the psychological identity, the dimension of psychological identity, uh, outside of what the anatomical features <laughs> lend us to identify you as. Uh, but here we are. <laughs> what does a parent want to know? They want to know what's best. They want to know if they're going to consent. And I guess we're also seemingly asking the question, do we need the parent's consent? And then if we've moved the marker as far as age is concerned to early teens, maybe prepubescence, how young? <laughs> and where is the line? It's very complex. It's very complicated, the answer. Question number five, then. Continuing. What does this mean for my child's mental health? And reading from the article. Children whose internal gender identity doesn't align with their assigned sex typically experience a pronounced feeling of discomfort or distress. What's known as gender dysphoria combined with the desire to be rid of the characteristics that don't match what they feel inside. Whether that's their name, clothes, or physical features, dysphoria can look like depression, anxiety, or anger, Schumer says. And Schumer is an endocrinologist, Daniel Schumer. I and I will make sure that to give him credit... He's a pediatric endocrinologist at Mott's Children's Hospital, at Mott Children's Hospital, and associate professor of, at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And he's stated, it was quoted in the article, our unconditional answer is absolutely not to the question of did we cause this. So I would take that to mean that he believes there is much more in the way of gender that's defined genetically. Uh, being the endocrinologist, I've acknowledged he's not the specialist, but he's not alone. There's many psychologists. Again, don't want to repeat <laughs> all that we've said up to this point in the podcast. But he is again quoted, Schumer says, dysphoria can look like depression, anxiety, or anger, or may manifest as self-harm. Kids may struggle socially or academically, Dysphoria can also lead to increasing discomfort with the physical body. A child may become anxious about showering, for example, or start refusing to change for PE. 
Now again, Schumer's specialty is endocrinology. I wanted to make sure that I told you who he was, where he was at in terms of uh, the hospital and the university, and establish that though he may have an opinion, such things as dysphoria, depression, anxiety, or anger are usually things that go to, at best, within the medical model, the specialty of psychiatry. Uh, and even if you should want to move that outside of a medical model or a physician into the territory of psychologist, psychological counselor, maybe even a sociologist, uh, what you're getting into then is a different specialty. So whether or not he's credible in terms of offering that opinion, uh, I'm not saying he's not. I'm just kind of looking at this as I should <laughs> with some degree of not skepticism, but I just want to make sure that the information we're receiving is accurate. And with that, it's as we like to call it, evidence-based. It's truly science. And this isn't just an opinion. And lest it is something beyond the genetics, then the opinion is more psychologically directed rather than physically directed. Gender dysphoria is hard to describe, even for some people who experience it, and it can be especially challenging for cisgender parents to make sense of. To Wald, who is a psychologist, and again, for the sake of making sure that we present this Accurately, Melina Wald is the clinical director of the Gender Identity Program at Columbia University Medical Center. To Wald, clients have described a sense of being disconnected from their bodies or feeling as though the reflection in the mirror or what they see when they look down doesn't match who they are. The pain of such incongruence may be exacerbated by social interactions that further highlight it. And it's often soothed by taking steps toward transitioning, whether socially, by using a different name or pronouns, pronouns, or medically, by taking gender-congruent hormones or pursuing surgery. So I'm going to add commentary. <laughs> I understand that. That's under relatable. Let's put it that way. Understandable. They have a feeling, clients have described a sense of being disconnected from their bodies or feeling as though the reflection in the mirror or what they see when they look down doesn't match who they are. The pain of such incongruence may be exacerbated by social interactions that further highlight it, and it's often soothed by taking steps toward transition, whether socially, by using a different name or pronoun, or medically, by taking gender-congruent hormones or pursuing surgery. I get that. <laughs> She's a psychologist. She's not speaking to genetics. She's not speaking to anything but perception. And with that, identity being something that forms as a result of socialization. Once again, what a child has been told by their parents, by their culture, <laughs> whether that is in some sort of immediate way, ex, um, uh, nuclear family or extended to community or again within a school system, 
And now with such mass media and forms of communication and social media and all of that, it's not limited geographically as much as it used to be formally. So it's really not even bound to nations or any culture that would otherwise stereotypically kind of come to have defined a nationality, a group of peoples. So it's really not genetic. It's much more sociological. And with that, it's not limited to particular geography. It seems to be a consciousness now that takes on a world dimension. And what's wrong with that? Nothing is wrong with that, with this exception. That all of the things that used to be much more ecologically, just in, sort of inherent within whatever restrictions that geography would have applied, they're removed. And there's a lot of diversity and a lot of options that are being presented. And how are we going to bring all this together? Well, certainly the parents used to be, again, primary, as with schools, as with immediate community. Now, children are open to, as their initial kind of experience with who they are is defined by others, by a much broader sort of, I guess, survey, consensus. And with that, there can be many, many, many different takes on gender. And even within more restrictive sort of dimensions of geography and region, <laughs> nationality. Uh, even so, there's a lot of individuals that grew up with different models of socialization. But if the parents can't do that, then are we going to rely and trust then on the school system to do that? Or maybe in a more worldview, we're going to rely and trust in social media, whatever kind of manifestation that might take to socialize our kids, to tell them who they are. And should they not really then fit in? And I want to make this case too, or at least this, identify this as part of making the case that these things are not necessarily as reality-based even in terms of the examples, the models, the social influence, influencers. They're not even in our physical dimension anymore. And so are they presenting factually? It's a little more difficult empirically to determine what's real and what's not. The further you may remove yourself from See it, touch it, taste it, feel it, the five senses, where you can then somehow digest the information in a highest order of research model of empiricism, hypothetical deductive reasoning, are the sources offering information that's, again, evidence-based. That's evidence is something tangible, something you can measure, quantitative. Or is it just somebody's opinion? <laughs> and then if you want to add to that, we are probably more exposed than ever before to fantasy. <laughs> Substitute reality. When you go to, as with example, uh, a movie theater, or if you stay at home and you watch it on some streaming service even, the reality, the line between fantasy and reality, as within a virtual context, gets even more blurry. So, so is it real? 
Is it tangibly real? Is it quantifiably real? Is it subject to solid research? Is it the highest order of research model? Is it designed for validity and reliability? Measures of that. Is it designed to make sure we take into account subjectivity, which is the realm of fantasy? My fantasies could be different than yours. Someone else across the world, the globe, could have a completely different orientation to life than I do. I can't say there any right or wrong, more so right or wrong than I am, except we bring it back to some sort of measure. And since genetics really is not there, the evidence, go listen to the previous podcast, are, the evidence is really not there. The studies are really not there to fully substantiate the opinions. Even that is still theoretical. We just need to be very careful that what we're taking in has some measure of vetting, validating, reliably establishing them as truth, which means regardless fact, and then truth being summation, culmination of various facts into a workable theory. Are theories truth? Is it reality? No, but they're the closest thing. And particularly when it's all about perception, perspective and perception, then that's the most solid ground we could stand upon. But I don't think Mott's disagreeing with that. Actually, or excuse me, Wald is disagreeing with that. Actually, I think that is being substantially substantiated, at least what I'm kind of com- my commentary is trying to backfill. But it still comes back to who makes the identification and shouldn't we expect children to ask those questions? Why? Adolescents to ask those questions, why? To test for themselves. What is real and what isn't real? We just need to make sure that whatever they're basing that upon is real to begin with. Fact to begin with. Empirically established as not only fact, but within this hypothetical deductive model called science, the best that we know it to be if we're going to call it truth or call it reality. And that's what we're not sure of and what we are losing some sense of really, I guess, appreciation for the more we move from tangible, quantitatable, or quantifiable, quantitative measures to really theory, which is more speculative, and then verges on fantasy, especially if you can present things in some sort of empirical way appealing to the five senses, but really they're just virtual. We've made them up. Computers have made them look real. They're not real. They're not something that you can relate to in a real dimension. So in past tense, we had the great advantage of going to school or in an academic situation or a social situation similar to school, 
academics, we could test it. We could figure out where we belonged. We could learn to relate to genders in terms of anatomical features, male and female, much more clearly defined. Now it's not the case. And then all of the dysphoria, again, as uh, was identified earlier by Schumer, dysphoria can look like depression, anxiety, or anger. Dysphoria can also lead to increasing discomfort with the physical body. Sure, because you're still trying to figure out who you are and who you relate to. And unless the anatomical sort of dimensions should be obvious, there's much to be said for even without uh, the particular parts being in full display or open to display or acknowledgement. But even then... uh, It was traditionally so that it was not unusual for men to be exposed to other men within that context or women, other women. And that helped to solidify that a bit in a social learning sort of dimension. None of that's seemingly there anymore. Or if it's there, it's not there in the same sort of a way that we'll go back to and say, well... This is male and this is female because some people, because of sociological features, psychological features, different ways of socialization, they don't feel comfortable with that. That's not what they were brought up with or what they were exposed to. It gets very complex and it becomes very confusing. But I don't know the answer necessarily is then to change the reality to match whatever the psychological aspects of identity would be, individually, socially, individuation, formation of an identity, sense of self, aligning oneself for the sake of whatever. (laughs) I think it's uh, somewhat expedient that we, at least for the sake of procreation, we tried to tie it to that in previous podcasts, to look at as as male and female, and I guess in some real basic sort of way, if you're going to have offspring and procreation is the ultimate of adaptive sort of, I guess, function, uh, survival of the fittest includes procreation. The notion of it is, is that if you can't really line this up properly or if there are sociological or social dimensions even to procreation, hooking up or connecting, forgive me for saying it that way, with members of the opposite sex, with the chance then of having offspring, you've got to at least take that into consideration. And if anything goes and everything's on the table, you're starting to really mess with the ecology of it the sophisticated nature of the calibration of all of this generation upon generation upon generation to the point where really survival of the fittest, Darwin's model, really has exampled itself or shown itself to be true. (laughs) We're the highest order of creature on earth. (laughs) Now maybe in universe that's different and Maybe one day, if we can survive this and it doesn't affect our ability to procreate, or maybe we'll come up with other ways to procreate rather than having to go through the traditional anatomical dimensions. We can do that too these days. Maybe that won't matter. 
But if you go changing that, and if it's still just sort of in a formative stage for the child slash adolescent, they're really not there yet, they can't reverse it. They can't go back. The impact of that may be irreversible. I'm not saying it is because we don't know. We need to do studies and research on that. I'm just saying, once again, why would we go and change reality simply because at any particular moment, one's identity is sort of being compromised? And should I say this, that most of the time, even as adults, our identity is fluid, but our anatomy isn't necessarily fluid. You can't just change your anatomy to match your psychology or at least your identity in psychological terms every day. It's not practical. It won't serve us well. One has to take precedent over the other. However we decide that, I don't know. It's just a theory. It's a perspective of mine that we should be considering that before we go down this rabbit hole, if indeed it becomes then just that, a rabbit hole with no really good reference for the exit, where we're going to get off and out of the hole or off the interstate or whatever you want to call it, uh, however you want to describe it, whatever metaphor you want to use. But it is this notion, though, that we should have that in mind as well. Just to be careful, just to be cautious, and I think to lessen the risk of even as a question. Question five asks, what does this mean for my child's mental health? That sounds like a lot to ask a child to think about. Sounds like a lot in terms of just that whole idea of creating more dissonance by offering all kinds of options that may or may not have a realistic or factual basis to them. And if you should then be able to change the facts to match, I guess, the reality or to match your psychological or your um, sort of desire for the world to be a certain way fantasy, I don't know, maybe that is in some ways A fantasy? You could call it that. That's probably, that goes against everything that we've known. (laughs) But I do believe we're here. Where we're asking ourselves this type of question or these type of questions. But this then isn't really about transgender. It's about reality. It's about what we're going to do if we should find ourselves with the power to change reality. Can we do that? Can we do that in a way that minimizes harm, that doesn't destroy the identities of persons having been born, having been brought up some way, or if it should be all part of some re-engineering? How are we going to communicate that, and how are we going to determine that without further dissonance? as the Psychology Today article describes it, or as Wald described it. So I'm going to go back to the article. It's also not uncommon for transgender or non-binary children to experience concurrent mental health problems. The point I'm making, though not all of them do, notes developmental psychologist Sabra Katz-Wise an assistant professor at Boston Children's Hospital, Harvard Medical School, 
and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. The research indicates that transgender and non-binary youth have heightened risk of depression, anxiety, self-harm, suicidality, and PTSD. So are we saying that being transgender <laughs> and with that non-binary, the depression, anxiety, self-harm, suicidality, and PTSD is because the existing cultural references don't support that. The psychological dimensions of how we look at gender and all these things we've been talking about. Or are we saying that because the child is really then possibly adolescent, now potentially, as I'm about to say this, we're talking about adults, they never work through identity. <laughs> and identity is hugely important because it begins to not only define us, but it defines us operationally. It captures a lot of things that are, I think, genetic in terms of potential, capability, but also actualization. But we used to think immaturity, arrested development, was a sign of pathology. <laughs> Not having some sense of relationship between what we think we are and what we are in terms of reality was seen as sort of a dissonance that you couldn't live with without it becoming more problematic and that there was a need to be able to at least, in some real-time way, continue, if it's all fluid, to constantly at least work towards some reconciliation. But the heightened risk of depression, anxiety, self-harm, suicidality, and PTSD, as Katz Wise comments, or commented upon, it may be just as much that we're not socializing and not socializing brings with it all of this that she's describing rather than because there's something innately in the child that says that they should be this or that. Maybe it's just not getting the answer to a stage of development or a phase of life that has then either a stage or several stages of development that includes psychosexual development that's tied to procreation, maybe it's they're just not resolving it properly. You could look at it that way and that this is just introduced way too much too soon. <laughs> maybe it's all legit. I'm not saying that in the end we don't decide to change the rules. I'm just saying maybe we're seeing the problems because we've added way too much in the way of option from all sorts of influences, social media, schools, culture at large, that really does not match up to what either the parents otherwise were socialized, were socialized to, what they agreed upon, what they were then teaching their child or their children to be as they were maturing, and now it's seemingly out of wherever, in some rapid way, we've decided well, we're going to change this. And we're telling all these children slash adolescents who are in very formative stages, you can be anything you want to be. 
That's probably true, but it's also probably not true. And if you're going to do that right now, you've got a lot of, I guess, process ahead of you. Not only as an individual, but as a culture. If you're going to be a pioneer, you're going to be the first. Okay. But you've got to find some way, I would imagine, to determine consensus. What the rest of the world wants. And you have to figure out what's going to be the definition. Lest nobody would know how to get along with anyone else. Except that there was at least some basic rules communicated. As to how that's supposed to be. I'm not saying that there aren't. I'm not saying that's not where we're moving to. Because I don't know. I'm just saying if this is informative for the individual... As with identity, in the individual context of development of identity, becoming an adult, becoming a person, having that personification of all the physiology and the psychology coming together in this way, then it also represents difficulties along that line of our society is now transitioning Where is the reference? Because it's not genetic. You may want it to be genetic, but we've not established that. And in that, we're swimming in a pool of ideas, a pool of theories, most of which at this particular point aren't proven or established. And I'm saying up to this point, it has been proven and established because we have the, I guess, the... uh, hallmark, the quality check of that highest order of adaptability, we're we're really risking all of that to chase after something that right now doesn't have any firmer a foundation than somebody's idea, which may then be as a result of some creative dimension of fantasy of a world that we're socially engineering, but we're not taking really into account That if Darwin was right, all of that as it's unfolded is the best way to determine what we are. Rather than waking up one day, so to speak, metaphorically, so to say, and deciding it needs to be different. Simply because all the struggles that we used to just attribute to determining identity and finding self... Because we're really not able to see that in a way of of working through it to the point of completion. Maybe the model has been destroyed by a lot of factors. Unfortunately, some of those may not have had to occur. Some of those were voluntary or by choice. We've decided to do some of this to ourselves, to re-engineer. We had to destroy It just doesn't seem then to be in keeping with that theory of evolution. (laughs) And all I'm saying is science has endorsed the theory of evolution, Darwinism, more so than anything else to this point. Why would we try to rush that or overturn that or change that so radically without expecting there to be then some struggles or challenges along the way that may actually create problems in the long run that we don't have answers to or may not get a chance to find answers to. 
When gender dysphoria co-occurs with another mental health condition, and that's what I was saying, maybe it's concurrent, but maybe it's all of this as we come together in that idea that we're going against what we have traditionally seen to be not only science, but empirically established, according again to the highest order of thought, of science, as a thought, as a paradigm, a way of negotiating life. When gender dysphoria co-occurs with another mental health condition or other sources of distress like poor body image or low self-esteem, it can be hard for parents to tell which came first and tempting to blame the former on the latter. Their concern is understandable, says Anderson. And who is Anderson? It's Laura Anderson, who is a psychologist who otherwise is in private practice working with kids in Hawaii, but says Anderson taking any steps toward transition can feel risky, especially to families in less accepting communities or those where seeking care may soon be illegal <laughs> if treating another mental health condition could resolve their child's gender-related distress and avert the risks of transition. Who wouldn't do so? Which I think is my point. It seems in the simplest of ways, for the sake of parsimony, which means you adopt a simpler not only explanation, but remedy rather than creating much more complicated explanations and then risk in those complications not being able to accomplish the end of resolving whatever the question might be that the theory is designed to answer. Most parents wouldn't choose for their kids to be the target of bigotry, which is true. But if what they're doing is the right thing, then the wrong thing would be as much then all of these individuals who are saying, oh, well, don't listen to them. <laughs> don't listen to, again, this kind of mass hysteria, um, this contagion of traditional thought. Uh, psychological theory on social development, on individual development. Eric Erickson, Jean Piaget, don't listen to all of these things that otherwise has come in a cultural way as much as with theory of psychology to the extent or degree that we've had a pretty functional society and not only society, but in a worldview, society, existence. Yes, there's a lot of conflict, but for the most part, we have indeed wretched the highest order of adaptive functioning in physical terms. That doesn't sound like that's the source of bigotry if bigotry then otherwise is measured as somebody who just doesn't like the idea that you might want to change it. Maybe all of that is right and maybe somebody needs to say, don't do this until you're sure it's the right thing to do. Even if it makes you feel better in the moment you're in, maybe the moment you're in is just a developmental stage you're going through. 
Or maybe it just is always going to be part of your life that you're never going to always be happy. That there's always going to be a challenge to your identity. That there's always going to be some aspect of adaptability that you have to engage in. Which means you can't always have it your way. Reality is not always going to turn out to be your way. And it has to be negotiated with other people because if you don't do that then our society, our culture, the human race falls apart. Men and women don't want to be together. Not because physically or anatomically they can't, but they have found other ways even to meet the physical or anatomical sort of dimensions of the sex drive or the need that otherwise represents procreation. And maybe in some ways then they don't procreate. That doesn't sound adaptive. If adaptability, once again, the greatest measure of that is survival of the species. Just as there are kids who are exploring aspects of their identity but ultimately realize they're cisgender, she says, there have been kids in my practice, her practice, who needed other things than gender transition in the long run. True. Let's make sure we say that resoundingly so, so much so that a parent or parents or a society or culture that is doing what has been historically done as has proven itself to be empirically sound in terms of the outcome that we desire, lest they think that somehow they're doing something wrong or that we're somehow going to persuade them that they're wrong. And with that, then they're going to throw hazard to the wind, which is really in effect what's happening. All of this may be good theory. All of this may be worthwhile of testing and study, but it's just at this point, a lot of wind. (laughs) It's not established. There's no substance to it. It's not substantive in that way. But they are a small subset, she says. I don't think so. I think it's reversed. At least in terms of those that are probably not cisgender, those that probably are wanting to transition, even those that may be currently or in the future go through gender transition. Those are the small subset, at least at this point. That's not arguable. But if the whole idea is to somehow influence society to kind of flip that or reverse that simply because we want to recognize the small subset, and then in that we risk confounding the rest of society than those that are (laughs) more traditional in terms of gender, male, female, binary. They will become the small subset, but they may also then represent the only hope for continuation of some order, at least to the extent that we've had great order in the past, or if there will be a new order and it will work just as well as what we've had in the past, We still haven't survived the transition, and that's also disconcerting. We may not survive the transition. Teasing gender queries apart from other concerns 
requires a clinician who does an in-depth evaluation of the child's identity, experience, and mental health and helps him to explore whether any physical discomfort is gender-specific or relates, or excuse me, or reflects broader teen angst with a changing body. So even as she says that, or the article says that, it sort of, again, starts to suggest, though, that gender-specific is genetic. That there's, again, some quantifiable defining element. We don't know that. Taking steps towards social transition, like using a preferred name or pronouns, can help parents better understand the nuances of the child's distress, adds Laura Cooper a child and adolescent psychologist in, da- in Dallas, do those changes seem as if they're helping with their mental health difficulties? Cooper notes that while transitioning can't always be expected to resolve mental health concerns, available data suggests that having pronouns respected dramatically reduces suicide risk among gender-diverse youth. So there's merit in that. The use of a pronoun, if it's going to ameliorate, I guess would be a word that I could use, or reduce the likelihood of someone wanting to harm themselves or kill themselves, as with suicide, we should do that. But we should only do that not by suggesting that in any way, shape, or form reality can be changed, but by always working toward, again, aligning one's confusion or uncertainty with what is real. And that would be, again, truth, reality, as tied to science and the prevalent sort of theory. But I'm just saying that prevalent theory has served us well, again, according to Darwin. And we are the highest order of being, creature-wise, on the earth in terms of dominion or dominance. We get to decide what happens to the earth. Nobody else does. No other entity as far as creation would be concerned. Okay. So, there's some merit in terms of treating symptoms, but I don't think there's merit in any of these arguments in terms of treating problem because the problem really isn't a gender problem. It's a science problem. It's a problem with accepting the hypothetical deductive model of reasoning as would then be tied to facts in such the elegant way that precedence, as with this idea that we've done this, we've adopted an awareness, a paradigm of life, That's taken centuries, generations, since the beginning of human history to form, and we're going to throw this all away and overturn this in a generation or two. Doesn't sound just that sound to me. Question number six. Does this mean my child will need surgery? (laughs) It's kind of leading. I don't come to that conclusion, but the article kind of with the question If I suppose if we've done what consensus would kind of suggest when it comes to legitimizing this this notion that somehow that it's genetics or that it's inevitable or that this just needs to happen in this way, shape, or form, this theory that they're offering, that's really what I'm, I'm wanting to get to. 
I guess at this point, if you ask question number six, you've already drunk the Kool-Aid. You already have gotten to the point of believing it must be true. And so the next question obviously is then, okay, you've convinced me. This is what it is. I should listen to my child. If they are feeling this dysphoria, then whatever they think they should be, do I need to do it? Does this mean my child will need surgery? Do we have to start hormones right away? Not necessarily, so the article says. There's not a one-size-fits-all treatment, says, again, Schumer. Each of these things, social transition, hormonal transition, and surgical transition, and get that, I mean, he's being pretty straight up. He sees social transition as first. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. That's not grounded in science. That's grounded in opinion. Consensus does not make things necessarily real if it means that we've disconnected ourselves from those things that we perceive to be quantifiably real. But he says it here. If you're going to go to that extent of social transition, then the natural extension of that is going to be hormonal transition and finally surgical transition. But he says, each of these things, social transition, hormonal transition, and surgical, actually changing hormonal and surgical, the anatomical features. It's just a tool in our toolkit that could be used in the treatment of gender dysphoria. True, it could be, but who would with no better evidence or no more solid foundation than, as I've tried to kind of comment or at least offer a hypothesis to the thesis, why would we do that if we don't know? Only a minority of transgender men, for example, opt for bottom surgery. Surgery on their genitalia. But for others, starting hormones or eventually embarking on a path to surgery effectively resolves the dysphoria. Now, again, we're talking about a truth. That helps those that are in that web, (laughs) all the data, uh, trying to, in the sea of all of this information, uh, in the wind of all this information, and trying to figure out what is right for them. That's true, but it's still a small subset. It is not the majority. It is not the majority. It is not consensus. It is not yet established consensus in terms of science. It is still a thesis that we're operating off of. But we're treating a mental health condition that's emergent from the confusion or the disruption of otherwise an established model of development, psychological, individual, sociological, and psychosexual development that has been part of psychology since its inceptions. And again, This is an endocrinologist who's offering this opinion, Schumer. A child's personal hopes for transition, a deeper voice, say, or a more feminine face influence treatment choices and timing. Why? Simply because the child wants one or desires these characteristics. And I I, I don't want to sound anything but, again, 
professional, a good purveyor of research. Uh, yes, a bit skeptical, but it is that simple. Simply because they want to change the anatomical feature, deepen the voice, or have a more feminine face, it does influence treatment choices and timing. But should a child be making this decision? If you're an adult, I get that. You're of legal age. You can consent to that. If we want to do that, that's fine. If that's all part of the great transition, that's fine. But until children get to the age of consent, you should not do that. They're not capable of making that decision. It goes without saying, again, they're developmentally not mature to make that decision. And then he goes on to say, but age and stage matter too. It's a secondary thought. No, that's the primary thought. The secondary thought is influence. If a family is interested in pubertal blockers, we need to keep a close eye on when the child is entering puberty. Sipersky says. And again, Sipersky is Melissa Sipersky, a psychologist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center's Pediatric Transgender Clinic. The sooner we catch early signs like hair and breast growth, the more likely we are to prevent further development in the sex assigned at birth. Okay, that's true. But we still don't know that the idea that somehow there's dissonance or dysphoria isn't simply a feature of their learning. They're attempting to resolve a very critical developmental milestone, whether, again, you measure that as an individual identity or you measure that as their place in society within a more sociological context or whether you see that as a psychosexual development. But you can stop it now and you can change it. It may make it feel right, but it doesn't mean they're not going to have to resolve those same issues unless you can establish the subculture as the predominant culture wherein then there'll be this other sort of dimension of not dissonance, but I guess alignment where they'll feel like they fit in. But what about everyone else in the transition? What are you going to do with them? At first, Noah and his parents didn't see eye to eye on hormones. I said, you're not going on testosterone until you're 18, Dana recalls, not wanting to brush any medical decision. I think that was probably prudent. Noah pushed back. To me, it felt like she needed to wait longer to make sure I was actually a guy. And he's 13 as they're interviewing him. He compiled research, they spoke to doctors, but in the end, I think what convinced her is when I told her, and this would be Noah, <laughs> I can no longer shower with the lights on. And he began testosterone this summer. A planned revision of the standards of care treatment guidelines developed by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. <laughs> Again, I would want to know who they are, what gives them then the credential, what their composite is. Are they composite psychologists, endocrinologists? Is it a multidisciplinary approach? I would want to know all of that before I take this for, <laughs> for a good revision 
good as an adaptive revision of standards of care, treatment guidelines developed by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, Health due out later this year, lowers the recommended minimum age for hormonal treatment or hormone treatments from 16 to 14. And so because they said that, and we don't, again, know who they're made up of, they might be. It may be all credible. It still doesn't make it. (laughs) To me, it's still a theory. Right? It's a hypothesis. I'm just offering a hypothesis to now what they're selling as thesis. This is an acknowledgement, says Cooper, a contributor to the non-binary chapter of the standards. What is that? A non-binary, it sounds like a social organization, maybe a political organization. I'm not accusing them of that because I've not gone and found out. I'm reading this straight out of the article. But it's probably worthy of some research. Take that in consideration. That it can be really difficult to go through puberty out of sync with your peers. Taking estrogen or testosterone can go a long way toward helping trans teens fit in. Yes, in the formative moment or stage that they're in. But that's not the final stage. Identity continues to evolve, but we still don't recognize personality is fully developed until one reaches what we've traditionally seen chronologically the best represent adulthood. They're not adults. Uh, One aspect of care that many clinicians consider non-negotiable is therapy. For a teen going through many changes and much complex thinking, having a neutral person to explore with can be extremely helpful. That's true, Schumer says. I agree. That's true. And a comprehensive mental health evaluation is a key component of the standards of care. But even so, who is the psychologist? How do you know if they're vetted? We've discussed that point in previous podcasts. Again, I'm not going to make you endure all of that again. But just keep that in mind. Even just because they have a license doesn't make them vetted. It doesn't make them even experts. They can have a certification, but does that make them experts? Is it based in science or is it just, again, an opinion? There's credibility that's owed them. They can certainly speak to the mental health components of the dissonance, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not caused by some other concurrent condition, which we mentioned earlier, or even so, directly a feature of the confusion We're not socializing uniformly our children into adolescence, into adulthood. There's going to be more difficulty as if it were difficult when we did more uniformly socialize. Schumer's right. For a teen going through many changes and much complex thinking, having a neutral person to explore with can be extremely helpful. But don't necessarily take them as the authority to tell you whether or not your child needs to undergo some sort of procedure to change their anatomy. Question number seven. What if my child changes their mind or has regrets? Behind many parents' questions is the concern, what if my child regrets this later? Parents are reluctant to say no to too much because they know their child needs support, Anderson says. But they also don't want to say yes too quickly for fear that their child will change their mind in the future and end up harmed by their attempts to change gender. Yes. Commentary. Yes. 
They're afraid that by saying yes to a name, a pronoun, or a new soccer team, what's that got to do with anything? Soccer team. They're being sucked into a wind tunnel that always leads to medical intervention. It feels more protective to say no. Why wouldn't parents be protective if the responsibility, the culpability, as weighty as it seems to me, to include not only the future of the individual child, adolescent, adult, but the society in which they belong, how well they'll fit in, whatever their course of life might be in terms of quantity and quality of life, I'd say protective is a good word. It's the right word to use. It's the right motive. No clinician, of course, absolutely, can guarantee that a child won't have regrets. Let's not minimize that, though. That should be our first thought. There's, there isn't even going to be 100% certainty, says Cooper. It's the nature of almost any big decision. True, but again, you're minimizing the decision. You're making it sound like it's trivial. It's not. But available data suggests the odds of regret are low. Based on what? The fact that after something has been done, the person's left with the consequences of that, that they're not in some ways then going to be inclined, even should they have some regrets, they're not going to be able to change it. Would it not then be making the best of the situation that they have found themselves in to try to accept who they are? I'd still say that. You can't change reality, you can just accept. You can't change facts, you can just accept and adapt. That's sound. But if you've changed those before the child's capable of making a good decision, you're still going to say that after the fact to minimize the discomfort. <laughs> Egodystonic, the dissonance that goes with that. But that's not justification for why that doesn't happen much, so don't worry about it. And they didn't say that, but that's my interpretation of what they want us to take from that report or those reports. Most research on post-transition feelings has focused on adults. A 2021 meta-analysis published in the Journal of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery. Not saying that there's any prejudice or bias there, other than that's their livelihood. For example, found that just 1% of nearly 8,000 patients who were followed for up to nine years after gender-affirming surgery expressed regret. Again, these aren't psychologists. I'm not saying that they offered, it's not saying that they offered the opinion. I'm not saying that it's saying that they offered the opinion themselves. They're within the scope of their specialty, their practice, plastic and reconstructive surgery. But they should leave the psychological interpretation up to psychologists and not just a limited number of psychologists, I want to know who Psychology Today is referencing. Is it Cooper? Is it any of these other specialists when they say and make that then a matter of they say, well, they're not really regretting it after the fact. That just goes to prove it. No, it doesn't prove it. It just proves they're adaptive and they're learning to adapt to what is. But they made it what it is. Can't go back and change it. No point in beating somebody up, so to speak, over something like that. But we should be thoughtful about that before we encourage everybody to jump over the side of the cliff. In the limited data on teens, a 2022 study examining more than 200 trans adolescents who underwent mastectomy found that 
Fewer than 1% regretted doing so. And again, I'm not sure that that really does, says anything, much of anything other than just state a fact. Data don't always soothe the parents' fears. Why should it? It's not sound interpretation of the data. That's what parenting is. You as a parent have to make that decision and it will be yours. And if you choose to go this route and it turns out wrong, it's yours. If you choose to go to this route, this route and it turns out wrong for your child, adolescent, then adult, or our society, it's on you. You make the decision. You get to choose. It's your responsibility. But that's the counterpoint and why I'm really spending all this time on the subject. Let it be science and don't let someone who claims to be a scientist but does not apparently be practicing or is not apparently practicing, they are not practicing science, try to persuade you. This is just persuasive thinking. This is not science. It has fact that may be empirically sound or from good research models, but the interpretation is just that, a conglomeration of multiple disciplines. But who are these people? And it sounds a bit more like they have something that they want to persuade us upon or direct us toward rather than really wanting to present the evidence and allowing us to make the decision. It's a gradual process taken step by step, says Cooper. Treatment can be stopped at any time if the child no longer feels comfortable with the changes they're seeing. Some medical changes like vocal shifts resulting from testosterone treatment are generally permanent. Generally permanent. But plenty of others like puberty or menstruation suppression are reversible. But they don't tell you what you have to go through procedure-wise and how reversible. Still embarking, it makes us minimizes. Sounds like it's minimizing the deleterious effects. Still embarking on a gender transition, especially one that involves medical intervention, requires parents to gracefully live with a certain amount of uncertainty. Make a good decision. Yes, there will always be some uncertainty. But make the best decision with the facts available, with the best model of study and research available to minimize the uncertainty. And again, any sort of negative side effects that are potentially irreversible. A monumental task for anyone. How can they do it? The simplest answer and the only answer was support. Of course, you're going to love your kids. We said that in the first podcast. Parents love their children. That's why they ask these questions. Nobody wants to tell their child they're wrong or somehow invalidate their child. But sometimes no is important. And if they're wrong, they need to be told they're wrong. We really emphasize the parent support group in our clinic. Okay. Wald says, it does wonders in helping parents be together in a community and learn from other families who are also trying to do what's best for the child. Question eight. Is it okay if I feel sad or confused? Unequivocally, yes, Anderson says. Many parents experience a deep sense of loss around their own expectations of who they thought their child would be. That's who their child should be. 
at least to the age that the child, adolescent adult, can make the decision for themselves. Parents are supposed to offer the best that they know. Otherwise, you run the risk of them coming back and saying, why didn't you tell me this? Countless family and culture traditions, in a bad sort of way. Bar and bat mitzvahs are inextricably tied to gender. Parents may have warm memories of spending time with their same gender parent and imagine doing the same with their child. That's part of socialization. That's part of a culturalization. Fathers picture walking daughters down the aisle. Coming to terms with a child's gender identity often means letting those ex... No! It doesn't accept that once you've done the socialization, once you've offered the best model. If the child should go a different way, then maybe you do have to adjust your... But your job is to teach them and tell them as a parent. That's your responsibility. A process akin to grieving and just as worthy of support. It seems to me they're shifting the blame onto the parent. When really all we know is the child's upset now, but we don't know how, again, you should have told me this, how upset they'll be down the road. If you've told them it's okay to be whatever they want to be, and then somewhere down the road it's not okay, you're still going to have to deal with all of this But in that case, it's more, again, default. I'm going to have to accept. Let's make the best of what we've done. We can't go back and change it. Which isn't bad. It just means why would you not want to do best you can on the front end so that you can, again, minimize that. Dana remembers confiding to a friend, I saved my wedding dress for Noah because I thought he'd wear it when he was a she. The friend laughed and said he probably wasn't going to wear it anyway. You're just grieving your own idea of who the child is, Dana says. And why would Dana be an expert? I know she's gone through it, but she doesn't speak for everyone. Noah's still the same kid he always was. That's true. We shouldn't be labeled by such superficials. We've spoken of that in previous podcasts. And if we're going to do that, then we just have to accept that everything in life is trans, but it's not always adaptive. You can do anything, but doing anything and people doing everything isn't always expedient to social order. It doesn't always accomplish the end. Noah's still the same kid he always was. He's just a better version of himself. Now, I don't know that to be the case. He's just dealing with the situation, and why would we not encourage him to accept himself? herself, whichever self, gender you would want to pick, non-gender, especially after the fact, unless they want to change again. And I suppose if we get to this point, would we not then say, well, if all of this is on the table, why isn't that on the table? We'll just change every few years to see what's most convenient for us based on whatever's going on socially at the time. Whatever the consensus is, the social opinion, whatever is the thing to do at the moment that we're in, our place in the sun, generationally. Parents often feel the need to shield their child from their own complex feelings. No, we just need to give them support while they work through those feelings and give them guidance and direction. And it's certainly wise that they not say hurtful things as they work through their own grief. I'm not going to criticize my child. 
my adolescent, I would never encourage that. For you to do that, I didn't do it with my child adolescent, he's an adult now, but I wouldn't encourage you to do that. But I'm going to go through that with them and I'm going to continue to present reality as best as I've come to the conclusion of it being. And unless you can show me empirically otherwise, evidence-based, good research, why should I change that? It's worked. Sipersky says, but it's okay to let children know. We may not understand yet, but we're working on it. We understand more than Sipersky would otherwise give parents credit for. My opinion. Emotional support and transparency underlie successful gender transitions. They underlie any transition in life. And life is transitional. But it doesn't have to be gender transitional. And if it is, you cannot separate it too much from the realities or risk that it's all fantasy. Question nine. When should I tell my child's school or family and friends? (laughs) Whether and with whom parents share their child's gender comes down to two factors, Sipersky says. The child's comfort level and readiness for disclosing and their safety. Once you do communicate that to others, by the way, my commentary, it's going to become a matter of their input and opinion. It's going to just add more to an already complex and complicated process of identity, gender included. I can't emphasize enough the importance of collaborating with your child in all these decisions. I agree totally. When a child, my commentary, when a child is ready to disclose, particularly at school, parents should be advocates. Katzwise says, ensuring that schools use the child's preferred name and pronouns and allow for other needed accommodations. Uh, Yes, I agree with that. It's nobody's business but the parents. And if the school's involved, they should stay as neutral as possible. But if a preference is shown, then the school should represent, represent, reflect, a respect for that. A parent's intervention can turn a dysphoric school setting into a comfortable one. Especially, unfortunately, if the school is trying to somehow persuade your child to be something that they're not simply because they too have kind of gone down this road and now they have, in a persuasive sort of way, an opinion and they have access to your child and they have the opportunity to persuade your child to be gender, transgender, cisgender, gender nonspecific, transgender, cisgender, they're primary socialization agents, but they're secondary to the nuclear family and the parents. But they should be as neutral on that as possible. That's not really their business. Except that it would be causing such distress, and then the parents should be brought in as the ultimate final authority. My opinion. If a child is bullied for their gender, that may change parental calculations. Absolutely. But it's still important to move forward in a way that respects a child's wishes, Sipersky says. Yes, as long as it doesn't move so far away from reality that it's maladaptive. Asking them who at school they feel safest with and developing a plan together gives kids an opportunity to stay involved and retain some control over their disclosure or the disclosure. It's equally important not to move too quickly, says Katz Wise. 
Some parents jump to correct others who misgender their child, but they may not feel supportive to a kid who doesn't feel safe being outed to that person. I agree. We should never put anyone in a situation of being bullied for whatever reason. The goal of disclosure should be what's best for the child, not what's easiest for the parent. But if the parent recognizes the importance, this is not easy. And that's really also the point. It may be easiest just to agree with the child rather than otherwise the parents to say, well, it's just the way it is. Question 10, final question. What is the best way to help my child right now? It really comes down to listening to your child, says Cats Wise, and treating them as the expert of their own experience. I don't need to repeat that. My opinion on that makes no sense. Especially if they're not yet at a point where they can see themselves objectively and accurately assess the facts of the data. Developmentally immature. Wald also encourages parents to read accounts of dysphoria and transition written by trans people. Oh, yeah. It may be helpful, but why would we want to use that in any sort of sentinel way to support or comfort a child if we know that in the end, doing that is going to create potential for more difficulty or if we've already decided that's not the right route to take? It just seems to encourage... Not that sympathy is wrong or that empathy is wrong or that understanding everybody's different and that they have a right to make that choice, but it does tend to, again, be persuasive. But in the end, she says, it may be best to accept that there may be parts of this experience that they'll never fully understand. I think that ultimately is the final proclamation of where influence and persuasion If they never fully understand it, that's because they've been told to do something that they have not yet been capable in understanding and consenting to. It is wrong to to persuade or to tell a child something, to be something, and also not tell them how to test it. It is normal, even with parents, as they would do a more traditional sort of definition of socialization with definition as to gender. You can test it if you want, but do it when you're old enough. Do it when you're an adult, when you can do that empirically in a sound manner and method and way. But if you result, if the result is, if you have a child who's went through adolescence and become an adult and they still don't understand it, they're not operating in this highest order of thought. They're not operating in autonomy, agency, independence. They have been brainwashed. And I know all this is kind of, never use that term in the article, my commentary, but all this is that contagion ideas that you're just brainwashing kids. No, we're offering the best paradigm and thesis that we know. They're certainly, as adults, welcome to go out and test it. That's their right. But if I don't tell them that, then it's on me if it harms them more in the long run. And all this turns out to be bad theory. And again, there's many things that have happened of late that we've been told were factually, theoretically sound. And found out there was really no research or studies done. That they really weren't accurate. And there are legitimately 
fatalistic sort of consequences attached to it. People are dying on both sides. We'll use the COVID again. For those who took the vaccination, there's some concerns that they may be at greater risk of complication that could lead to death. There are those that didn't take the vaccination and with that died prematurely of complications. But we should not be mandating something if we don't know. Or if there's a better way to know, we should do that before we make everybody subject themselves to one or the other side of that. If one or the other side of that may be wrong for them, and maybe it's not just even as in this example of the transgender, that's not a small subset. We're looking at a proposition of statistically probably greater numbers. Don't know how many. I can't quote it. I can't cite it because I don't think all the data is in. But there's enough to consider a lot of misinformation went out as fact, theory that was hypothesis that was established as thesis or theory that we're making policies, decisions, and social contexts. All of that had a social context in addition to just the physical that probably didn't turn out as well as we'd hoped it would. A deep knowledge of what it feels like to be gender diverse is not a prerequisite for supporting a child through a transition. Stay focused on your whole child too, not just their gender. Amen. Say it that way. Hear ye, hear ye, hear, hear. That's true. Talk about what they're reading or anything else they like to do, says Catswise. Otherwise, the child ends up feeling as if their whole experience is reduced to being trans. Yes. And don't forget the joy. Beyond parental concerns and fears, a child's gender transition can be an awakening. Parents report learning things about their child that they didn't know they didn't know. And watching them bloom in ways they never imagined, says Wald. It's truly a magical thing when a child becomes who they're meant to be and starts to be alive in a way that they didn't seem to be before. It's just let's make sure that they have the aptitude as well as have gotten to a point where they can then show the ability, capability, to make that decision for themselves. Up to that point, until we can show otherwise, I'm more inclined to say, move slowly, love your kids, answer the questions, try to do it factually, but follow your own instincts and intuitions Because for the most part, if it does tend to be much more traditional, and this should not even be a binary argument, but again, the way it's been framed, it seems to be either you're for it or you're against it. I don't think that's true. There's a lot of in-betweens, and there are a lot of complicating, insinuating circumstances. And I'm not saying it's not a right option for certain people or certain circumstances with or without concurrent, freestanding, independently standing mental health conditions. Or as they all come together to to create this complex of sort of a dual diagnosis sort of model of a lot of difficulties coming together or in complex, they accentuate or potentiate the magnitude or amplification of the problems. But the parents are the best at determining what's best for the child. 
Should someone come see me and they seek psychological counseling, that's what I'm going to tell them. I, I read this entire article with the thought in mind, or at least chose it as a topic of conversation, with the thought in mind that it's informed consent. We need to be able to talk about these things openly. I could have just offered my own thesis or opinion and kind of have brought it around to that, as with closing commentary on today's podcast. But that's not what science is about. Science is about recognizing alternative, the hypothesis. And it's about skepticism. And I'm as open to skepticism or challenge on what I believe to be true as anybody else should be on what they believe to be true if we're doing it within the spirit of that highest order called science of thought and study. But let's be factual and true about it. And if there is a universal truth, it's science. Don't withhold data and don't go promoting policy or a theory in a persuasive way outside of the realm of what the evidence supports. Otherwise, you're getting into opinion, and all opinion is in a creative dynamic. I'm all about creativity, new ways of looking at things, doing things. I think it is all part of life. But let's just acknowledge it's all theory, and don't sell it as not only fact, but truth until we can establish as best we can through science what is true. Again, I hope this has helped. (laughs) I don't know if it has or hasn't. Psychology Today, October of 2022, what parents of trans kids want to know. When a child first tells their parents that they're transgender and non-binary, their parents have questions off of these 10 by Devon Fry. And again, what are you listening to? You're listening to Word with Dave Clay and what's my intention? Again, to promote science, to promote good mental health as well as good health. And hopefully so, we're true to that. And if you find us to be so and you enjoy the podcast, or if it's a benefit to you, I, of course, would love to invite you back to our next edition of Word with Dave Clay. In the meantime, good health and good mental health.